Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. My name is Trey Kaufman, and it's been my goal throughout the last 120-plus episodes to explore what happiness means to me through conversations with guests who consistently demand the best for themselves, refusing to settle for a life that doesn't bring them the utmost joy. I can tell you through these conversations that this life is a possibility for all of us, not just entrepreneurs or authors or thought leaders, but for each person who knows deep down they can do better and who is willing to experiment and make small incremental changes to their lives in a way that feels good and feels right. I can tell you from personal experience that once you realize that you can improve one area of your life, you will have opened a Pandora's box and will discover a world that you previously thought unavailable to you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mosaic Life Podcast, I would be incredibly grateful if you would share it with friends and family. I'm so grateful to have had the chance to have the conversation you're about to hear. Courtney is an incredible advocate of reshaping the way we think about the world around us, especially when it comes to preconceived notions or biases. But what I was most impressed about with her and her book, Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive, was that she and it are both incredibly grounded with thorough and thought-provoking current research. In her extraordinary new book from Hay House, Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive Embrace the Science of Sensitivity, Heal Anxiety and Relationships, and Connect Deeply with Your World, Courtney Marcassani destigmatizes the term sensitive, illustrating how sensitivity is a powerful advantage and provides a pathway to an effective balancing act between being highly aware and participating fully in the world without feeling the need to shut down or self-anesthetize to avoid pain people or environmental stimulation. Now a coach, teacher, and health advocate with a master's degree in mind-body medicine, she has spent the last 20 years passionately exploring the research gap that exists between what medical science believes and what the gifted sensitive feels. She provides an enlightening ride through early to now emerging science on sensitivity and the abilities of the highly sensitive. Please welcome my guest, the incredible Courtney Marcassani. Courtney, how are you? It's great to it's great to connect with you. I'm I'm so glad that we're able to chat today. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me to chat yeah, today. Absolutely. I was uh thinking about it. I know we spoke, I don't know, it's probably been close to a month now. Um and it was great uh, getting to know you a little bit. Uh you are in Alaska, correct? Yes, Anchorage. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I, I don't usually say that's awesome about where somebody is. I just, I've never been to Alaska. I don't even know if I've really mm. had a conversation with somebody from Alaska. And I think the only reference I have for Alaska was the movie, the fourth kind. Have you seen that movie? I haven't, but I saw a lot of controversial information about it when it came out, including the fact yeah. that like the website and a lot of the things that were advertising it were like, I don't know, clickbait or that it was, um, <laughs> yes. it was controversial. I'll just say that. I saw a lot of that 
information about it. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I think I bought into that when I first saw it. I'm like, oh, this is a true, based on a true story and all of that. And, you know, right. if you read anything into it, you realize that it's, it's all fiction, you know, kind of the, the same way that the Blair Witch Project played off on being, a, you know, or I guess they didn't deny the fact that it wasn't real. I don't know. It was a good movie, but I mean, Alaska just seems absolutely gorgeous and I would love to get up there at some point in time. I will say this just kind of as a follow-up to what um, you're mentioning. I think that happened out in Nome. And so I do have yeah. friends, actually quite a few friends from Nome who grew up there were born and raised. And, um, you know, there were native indigenous individuals who wound up missing. And really? so, yeah. And so there was part, there was a kernel of truth in the fourth kind story. Now I didn't see the movie, so I can't speak to all the different dimensions of what they went into, but other movies have kind of gone into that since like aliens in Alaska and the Bermuda triangle of Alaska. And so there's all these experiences that people have in Alaska that can't be defined. So there is, something real, you know, but there's yeah. also um, kernels of truth, like people have gone missing, but they didn't know exactly in Nome why people were going missing. If it was, right, um, you know, people getting inebriated and then going out and wandering out into the wilderness. Um, but right. my, my understanding of that movie is there was, there's too many cases at the time gotcha. to, that were unexplainable, that they couldn't explain. And that's where the that's fourth kind steps in. Yeah, that's that's super interesting to me. I you know, I I will be the first to admit that I do my best to keep an open mind and you know the the idea of space and we'll just say extraterrestrial life has always it's always something that you know to, to quote uh, the, the the famous X-Files I, I want to believe and I don't know it's just it's um that sort of thing always fascinates me and it just it I don't know. It's my perception that it just, it seems to happen more often where there's much more wilderness available. I, I don't know. It's just, yes, that's, that definitely. sort of thing's just fascinating to me. Well, I had an experience. I mean, we can talk about it. I don't talk about it very yeah. much, but um, I think the interesting thing about, now I never watched the X-Files, but I've been referred to it many times because the thing that the X-Files did well with Mulder's story was that he was a lifelong individual who had experienced yeah. those kind of phenomenon. And so the reason I wrote the book for Gifts of the Highly Sensitive was essentially out of those types of phenomenon that are unexplainable at first for the individual. They go from maybe a belief system of keeping an open mind or maybe even a complete skeptic. But then once you have an experience, once you go through something that you can't explain, then you look for reasons why. And I, I think that X-Files did a really good job with that character because he becomes kind of obsessed of understanding yeah. why those things happened to him and his family. Yeah, that's super interesting the way you point that out. I, 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 I certainly won't generalize, but it seems like a lot of us will have experiences in our lifetime and we will find some way to rationalize it so we can continue on with our life without having to believe in something that is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that's, that's hard. I don't know. As, as somebody... I, I absolutely want to talk more about your book, and I, I will be fully. <laughs> I will be fully transparent and say I, I'm, I'm just over a quarter of the way through. I have not been reading as much as I'd like to. So, but okay. it's been a fascinating book, and I'm looking forward to to finishing it. Um, okay. But it's just, I mean, when you talk with people who have had these experiences, when, who people who seem to be sensitive, and they they try to rationalize it as you know everyday life or just something that does not seem extraordinary. I mean, how how do you get people to remain open about what they've experienced? 
Well, I think it's a spectrum. You know, I talk about that in the book, but it's usually a, sometimes a life altering experience, which happens, which cannot be denied. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that absurd quality of it that just cannot be explained with, you know, everyday physics or everyday science. And so that's the life transforming part that goes into all these different areas like of belief systems. But when I ask people to keep an open mind, it's typically around synchronicity because everybody has synchronicity in their life. We all experience it relatively small scale where you have, you know, you'll be driving in your car or coming home from work or grocery shopping, something very mundane and ordinary. And you'll have a thought. It's just as simple as a small thought where you're, where you think, Oh, I need to call my mom or I should check in on my daughter or something like that. And then they call you when you get home or they call you moments later. Sometimes it can happen real time and you actually get the call when you have the thought, which is, you know, it's hard to ignore that synchronicity, even though it's relatively small. So that's how I try to encourage people to keep an open mind and it's through the doorway of synchronicity. That's fascinating. Um, I, 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 I've had similar experiences like that. And I, at first, I, I want to I want to point out something you said relatively early in your book. You 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 felt like the central operator in your small world or the small corner of the world, fielding questions about the woo factor. I mean, is this something that has always just kind of been drawn into your life, and you've always felt that synchronicity, and it was just something that you started to listen to? No, it was not always in my life. I'll say that. I feel like the turning point for me was in my 20s when I was working at a trauma center and I had had some of these experiences and I started to question what they were and why I was having them. Why? Why it was happening? Um, Because I grew up in a very blue collar family, working class. um, And, you know, there was no discussion about any of this. You know, it was really... um, just not part of our life. And so I didn't grow up in an environment or with a family that were saying, um, hey, this is an intuitive thing, you know, and you have it or you're displaying it. I mean, there was none of that. So I feel like I was relatively, um, you know, out in the cold on a lot of that. I mean, the only experience I had ever had with these topics is by reading books like Stephen King. When he, his earlier stuff, he talks about some of these anomalous experiences but that was fiction. <laughs> you know, that was horror and fiction that I was reading as a as a kid. And so for me, those things were put out in the box of probably like most normal folks who, you know, don't encounter extraordinary experiences where I was thinking, well, that's just fiction. So in my yeah. 20s, when things started to really accelerate, I would say with my intuition, it started to um, really become profound in my life. That's when I started to question about it. So then people started to realize I was questioning about it. And then they would refer other people who were questioning about it back to me because they knew that I was, you know, on a a sense like a search or seeking out information, trying to understand it from my own self and my own inner, my own inner work. Yeah. And then I think you, you told a story also about um, a woman who she was a, she was a former FBI consultant or she worked with the FBI and it was that, that, was that kind of a, I mean, if I recall correctly, that was kind of a, a point where you started to really focus in on this work. Or am, am I not remembering that correctly? I just remember that no, being a yeah, fascinating I had story. Had, you're, you're right. You're right. There's a timeline of events. And so because things opened up in such a way, and I'm just going to you know, say what those experiences were. Yeah. They were, they were precognitive dreams. 
okay, where I would have a dream and then it would happen in real life. That was the first stepping stone. Then the second stepping stone seemed to be almost like a telepathic connection or an empathic connection with other people in my work as a counselor yeah. with my patients. And then, um, you know, I started to perceive dangerous events that hadn't happened yet. And that was what really started to throw me off balance is I was trying to discern from my own perception, well, what part of this is fear-based maybe trauma related, you know, from my history and what part of this is projective, like is actually predictive of the future. Yeah. So some of those events came true and that's when I got kind of scared. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm just going <laughs> to claim it. I was very fearful of the visions because they were prophetic yeah. in nature. And so I was seeing things that were very scary. And so I shut down as much as I could with my like logical side of my brain, that type of perception, because I was afraid of it. Yeah. I also had a health scare that seemed to be related to it. So flash forward through that period of development, which I would, you know, uh, be like my mid late twenties to, um, you know, like my second marriage, a move to Montana. And then this other period, which was several years later, I started to, that it just started to open back up again and I couldn't control it. And I was referred to the FBI agent, the retired FBI agent, and she helped me. She basically said, you know, these are the steps you need to take to develop this ability and not be afraid and not shut down. Because she was basically like, if you shut it down, you're going to have problems. Not only yeah. psychological effects from trying to shut off basically that part of my brain, right? And the intuitive right. nature within myself, but also like the angst, the internal struggle that I would be having, trying to force it back and trying to tamp it down. Yeah. Um, just a moment ago, you, you, you touched briefly on trauma. And when we first spoke, uh, I had written something down that you had said that trauma shapes perception. Um, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Because I'm, I'm curious how that, how your trauma, how, how, how that shaped your perception as you were kind of growing into this, well, obviously we'll call it a gift. Yeah. Well, I, my, pers my perspective on intuition and sensitivity and this whole specialization that I'm basically advocating for in medical ter terminology and psychological yeah. uh, terminology is to try to advocate for individuals um, like myself who are probably experiencing PTSD and from a very young age, but don't know, but don't know that they've been traumatized. And so my uh, theory essentially is that the gifts develop not out of a, in a vacuum, right? These things don't just develop one day and you know like i'm talking about my 20s they arrive they were probably there all along but because i experienced a couple of different things and very exaggerated effects like violence yeah. okay there was a lot of violence early on in my life and then there was also um addiction okay and so those couple of those things as a young child and feeling completely helpless in your environment the gifts, in my opinion, are developed or the, the origin starts there because the young child is trying to perceive the environment almost with like an extended sensory perception to be able to detect and discern when danger's coming. So you can either run, be prepared to fight or, you know, dissociate essentially is the other thing when you can't get away. And so I don't go into my early life stories in the highly sensitive um, uh, for gifts book, because I really wanted to talk about my theory around why, 
and yeah. to explain to people, this is how it works. This is all the research behind it, because I didn't really want to traumatize people with my own personal story in yeah. reading it. I wanted them to feel safe in my hands with the book. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you, you're touching it on it, touching on it now. And what I love about the book is even from the beginning, you, I mean, it's what you're presenting, you're presenting, you're also including or backing it up with scientific based research and evidence. And that I think that does a lot to hopefully mitigate some of that woo, that woo woo uh, and <laughs> help people uh, remain or at least be able to read it in a grounded sense. And, you know, acknowledge that, you know, this isn't something that you pay $5 for and get a palm reading. Not that there, I'm not judging that's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I'm just saying this is something that there is actually active science and research behind. And I would love to delve more into that because it's not something that I have done a lot of research into. And it's something that I think a lot of listeners would, you know, appreciate having that, that science backing too. Yes. So I think because I am so scientific and, and I went to a very science-related uh, discipline in my undergraduate and then got my MS, you know, for my upper-level graduate work and probably will when I do the PhD work, it's very based in science. There was always part of me that was grappling with that woo aspect within myself. Yeah. And it appeared as woo all the time. Right. And I couldn't, you know, explain it. And so along my journey, right. Of those 20 years of questioning and seeking out and reading research and trying to find like hard science to support what I personally was seeing as a very um, expansive awareness, you know, everything that was coming about, a lot of it was new age. And I had never read a new age book. I told yeah. you, you know, like I had read Stephen King um, you know, when I was in like eighth grade. So <laughs> when I started to like <laughs> seek out information and knowledge, a lot of it was beating the bushes and, and I just kept getting referred to the new age. So it's not that I don't like new age um, literature because I found it to be fascinating. And yes, it did encapsulate a lot of those um, experiences, but I like the science, the hard science, because it really does appeal to that part of myself that feels like it can explain what's going on through neurology, through the emotional processing in our brain. And when I started to search long enough, I found it. I found what I was looking for. Now, people could say, well, that's a bias. But I tried to, you know, incorporate as much as I could without being biased that could just neutrally explain yeah. a lot of this stuff, especially in like complementary health and complementary right. health that has advanced a lot where complementary health was basically established a lot of times for sensitive people because they needed somewhere to go because traditional medicine couldn't explain their symptoms. Right. Um, can you talk to me about complementary health? Uh, I had I, never heard that uh, term before. Well, it was alternative health, right? It's been called okay. alternative health for a long time. It's changing now. Then it was complementary health. Then it was integrative medicine. And so it keeps changing and morphing from more woo-like terminology that make right. people cringe <laughs> to more <laughs> modern um, technology, which make it sound more acceptable. So what's happened over the evolution of alternative medicine is there are parts of it that work, right? There are parts of yeah. it they have found like, like mindfulness, right? And mindfulness-based right. stress reduction that have clear clinical physiological effects to help people um, with cardiac health, blood pressure. And so they've, they've stripped out the parts that are really able to be tested with validity and reliability and used. Now, M uh, BSR came from Buddhism. 
right? right. John Kabat-Zinn right. went over, explored Buddhism, and and put took the parts that he thought he could basically take to the ER and cardiac doctors and say this will work. But you see the whole culture, the the like the religious part of it, be stripped out of it because he knew that that would not be be able to be accepted, widely accepted by Western medicine. So that's the shift. You're seeing the shift happen of the parts of alternative medicine that can be useful, be integrated into modern medicine. So now it's called integrative medicine. Gotcha. That's so fascinating to me. Um, the, the, the whole the whole medical I don't want to say industry, the, the community. It's just the way that it seems to be shifting. It's 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 very, very interesting to me. Um, I mean, in regard to MBSR, I recently had a gentleman on named uh, John Abate. Uh, he specializes in that. He's he's out in California. We had a wonderful conversation uh, based on that, based on Buddhism. And it just had a wonderful philosophical conversation. And I, I personally have been so fascinated by my own health and wellness. And as I've taken ownership of that, I've realized how, I don't know, I guess not how much I more relate to Eastern medicine, but how little interest I have in, you know, taking part in the, the, the pharmaceutical industry. I, I recently watched, uh, or I am watching dope sick. It's a, it's a Hulu special on the, on Purdue pharmaceuticals and, uh, um, Oh shoot! Whatever that that uh, that that drug is, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's that uh, uh, oxycotton and yes, just how I've it seen has. It. Yeah, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Is that and the how one with abs- Michael Keaton, or is that something different? Yes, yes, yeah. It yeah, is it. absolutely not the movie, terrifying. but I've seen like the trailers for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's 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 terrifying, and you know, it's obviously, you know, it's based on you know what has happened, uh, especially hardest to us here in the Midwest and Appalachia, and what the how how incredibly horribly it uh, created an affliction within those communities and within coal miners, and how lives were just ruined. And so, I don't know. It to me, it's it's been fascinating to see some of this this as you said, new agey type medicine come into the the fold and how we are starting to accept it more as what we think about holistically in regard to our own health. And I don't know, I think a lot of it has to do with branding. I mean, you talk about some of that, that woo-woo language and it turns people off, but when you, you know, give it big scientific words, oh yeah, I trust that. That sounds great. Let's, let's do that. I don't know. It's just that shift has been fascinating to see. It has been. It has been fascinating to see. And when you dig down into the roots of the acculturation, I would say, of things like homeopathy, homeopathy was really first. You know, it was it was a competitor to the American Medical Association at the time when um, medicine was really taking root. Conventional medicine was taking root in New England. And so what happened was because homeopathy was so popular in New England at the time, Um, the American Medical Association, who had only recently been established, started to fight them, started to fight the homeopathic medical providers because they were so powerful. And so you see these two foundations being established. Now, the American Medical Association recognized two of the treatments that the homeopathic providers that they were recommending were actually very valid and reliable and reduced symptoms in a very specific type of case diagnostically, symptomology. But what ended up happening was they took that part out of homeopathy and turned it into like, you know, a medical treatment and then attacked, 
and then attacked homeopathy and then it, it never recovered. I mean, people are now, yeah. there's a resurgence and people are now going back to homeopath, you know, homeopathic medicine and looking into the science of it, right? And, and trying to rediscover it. And there's people that have been homeopaths all along, but that's once again, that's alternative, that's fringe. Whereas if you look at the actual beginning <laughs> of the American yeah. Medical Association <laughs> alongside homeopathic medicine, you go, wow, right? That's so interesting. And then the American Medical Association did the same thing with like chiropractic medicine and driving people out because um, chiropractic was also very popular and osteopathy and things. And so, you know, it becomes the big hulking political battle between the AMA, you know, which is now the recognized premier American medical um, you know, regulator and, um, you know, the judge and the jury. And so when you start to get into looking at how things came about and their origin story, you can see that they were suppressed in a way. And so I feel like that evolution is very interesting because there are probably serious, um, treatments that were of value, but because a lot of it in those, um, health practices weren't, you know, then they got, they got put down. And so it depends on regulation. It depends on money. Right. It depends on politics. It depends on lobbying. And so I think the reason why the complementary health and integrative medicine has been um, being strongly lobbied is because there is a lot of it that works and they want to establish a name for themselves. So that's why you're seeing things like health coaching come about, which, yeah. you know, 20 years ago would have been looked at as nutty. Really, it, I mean, a health coach, right? But now it's like it's a valuable treatment and a valuable service that's provided at an affordable cost a lot of times. Yeah. So as long as you're with somebody who's been trained well in health coaching, you can see that behavioral aspect really does work. And that's part of the, the gap between doctors and what they can provide, right? And quality, high quality health coaches that really can help people make those behavioral changes. Because that's what it comes down to in, in health. And that's why things like MBSR are so positive. They're low cost or no cost. If you're not doing a training and you're learning it from somebody who's teaching it to you, but low cost, if you're doing a training and then it's yeah. nothing to practice it there, it's not, it's yeah. no cost to practice mindfulness and the, and the therapeutic benefit is so positive and valuable on the day to day. So yeah, what was once considered alternative or religious through a Buddhist practice has become mainstream now. MBSR yeah, is I definitely mainstream. And that's, that's, that's super exciting. And uh, kind of tangentially, there's been a lot of research in the past five or 10 years into psychotropic drugs and how that can, you know, help. Uh, I think a lot of that research has gone into people who suffer from PTSD and just starting to understand that there are non-pharmaceutical alternatives to really helping people start to be able to heal from prior traumas and experiences. And I don't know, I, I don't know much about it and I have not experienced any sort of psychotropic drug in the past, but uh, the research that I have read, it, it seems very promising. There is another, another long history with different types of, um, classes of drugs and even clandestine yeah. studies that were being done by the CIA, right? About, you know, yeah. rainforest medicine that had been used in religious ceremonies forever, Absolutely. right? In indigenous cultures that were basically used for traumatic symptoms, right? In the culture to be able to heal. 
And so I think one of the problems with a lot of this stripping out the potent part of whether it's drugs or practices or spiritual um, rituals is that you're seeing the whitewashing and it's been happening for so long where you've been seeing, you know, essentially a Western culture going out and seeking for medicine that works and taking it from other cultures and then adopting it like Tylenol, for example. Yeah. Tylenol was taken from a, um, you know, acetaminophen or salicylic acid was taken from a tree bark in the Amazon, found efficacy and then brought to the U.S. and put into a capsule. And now it's one of the most widely um, taken pain relievers. So that was taken from a tree in the rainforest. And I think that what we're seeing now is a reconciliation between the tribes and the indigenous uh, cultures where these things have been stripped or taken from and not um, given back, right? Not given back, not given credit, not given um, financial reimbursement or however you want to look at that balancing act or even their land being taken away. There is a reconciliation that needs to happen right now. And I think that it's happening because you're seeing so many tribes and so many indigenous cultures crying out, um, you know, we've been taken advantage of. And so I think it's amazing that modern medicine is adopting a lot of this and even including, um, you know, psychotropic and different types of medicine that have been around for a long time from the rainforest. But it's a matter of balance and not just trying to heal our sick selves and doing it any way we can and, and any way we want. And so that's the part that I think is missing still is we're still seeking to find things that are working, but we're not necessarily harvesting or giving acknowledgement or still doing it the right way. It's still kind yeah. of a, a take system, a take advantage of system. And then, you know, Absolutely. you see these huge labs, you see these huge, huge labs, put it in their lab, you know, make it work, make it work their way and then make a bazillion dollars off it. I mean, it's 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 a it's astonishing to look at the pharmaceutical industry taking natural medicines and then making so much money off of them off of sickness. Right. And so that's another top down system where people need these types of medicines, you know, for their own health and wellness and their own healing. And it just it's control and it's power. So. It's a matter of, I think, us having sovereignty over our own health, our own body, yeah. our own wellness. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that we're going to we're going to see shift, you know, in the yeah. future. And we're going to see some of that um, top down stuff be balanced back out, I think, through sovereignty, through medical sovereignty, through health and wellness sovereignty, because people are fed up with it, that imbalance of power. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely are. And I, I think so much of it has to do with individualization of, of our treatments. And I, I guess when we going back to the Oxycontin example, you I mean, it's it's one pill that you are hoping for a mir- miracle cure. And it's, it's you're popping it and you feel better for, you know, 12 to 16 hours, but then you need it again and again and again until you can actually individualize your treatment and actually get it down to the roots of, you know, where your pain stems from, whether or not it's mental or physical or just a past traumatic experience. We really need to address the root cause instead of trying to put a bandaid on the surface level of, of where our, our pain and anguish is. I agree. And I think that PTSD is one of the most complex, especially complex PTSD. 
it's one of the yeah. most difficult it's one of the most difficult um things to heal and it's because of the repetitive nature of it it's because of the triggering aspects of it that seem um like completely out of your control and so there's you know physiological parts to that there's psychological and emotional parts to that and there's behavioral parts to it and so a lot of times right. people who have PTSD who don't know it i mean a lot of people are learning to recognize it now because there's so much education out in the in society about it um it is it's repetitive right and yeah. so it's repetitive in your life it comes up in different ways it comes up in the people that you um are surround yourself with it comes up with the choices that you make and so a lot of times sensitivity is completely overlooked in PTSD, yeah. but it's part of the clinical picture. It's a big part of the clinical picture because sensitivity is ramped up during, uh, you know, like episodic symptoms where you're feeling more vulnerable, you're feeling hypersensitive, you're feeling um, tearful, you're feeling, I mean, a lot of people just describe feeling um, like they're on the hair trigger. A lot of people don't recognize the anger, quick to anger is part of PTSD right. or a low level anger that just, you know, feels like it comes out in a rash of it. And so yeah. when sensitivity is really seriously addressed, it's leading a lot of those symptoms. It's really on the front edge of a lot of those symptoms, but we're not learning how to recognize sensitivity from the inner from the inner's perspective. But once you start to see sensitivity as part of your own diagnosis, right. having PTSD, then you can take control and feel like it's coming in on you a lot less. It doesn't necessarily take it away initially, but you start to be able to recognize, ah, this person is triggering me. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why a lot of chemical dependency and a lot of addictions are established very early on in PTSD, because individuals who are so sensitive and experience those symptoms are trying to anesthetize their pain. So that's yeah. why psychotropics become part of it, because early on when people were going to the doctor to heal their pain or to numb their pain, they were, you know, the first thing they were doing was writing the script for OxyContin. Right, right. Okay. And so then you have all these people who are becoming so addicted to it who are not drug abusers even or not have any kind of drug history in their background because they're trying to deal with pain, whether it's physical pain or psychological pain. Um, we have two motivations, right? Pleasure and pain. Yeah. yeah. And so that whole era of drug prescribing it was so unfortunate because they individuals had easy access to it and then it created all these horrible addictions and addictive behaviors yeah and so then you have a whole ptsd effect from medical right from medical treatment you know from either having an accident or something else where you had to take a pain reliever and then you have this addiction that comes about from it which is totally unexpected yeah. so that's two different issues you know you're talking about PTSD and having it and then taking um, something to anesthetize your pain. And but then you're also talking about another, um, you know, type of issue where you confront something um, like back pain or an injury, and then you end up becoming traumatized through it. Right. And, you know, the psychotropic might be part of that picture or not, but it becomes more and more complex as they do, because then you have to deal with the addiction as well as yeah. the as well as the symptomology. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, let's, let's, uh, I, I do want to shift a little bit and I want to talk, uh, you in the book, you lay out, uh, four types of highly sensitive people, sensitive impasse, sensitive intuitives, sensitive, uh, visionaries and sensitive expressives. And I'm hoping if you don't mind, we can kind of go through each of those and kind of uh, provide a primer for, for what each of them are. And I, I, uh, I'm excited to, to hear this from, from your mouth, because I think a lot of people, and I, as I read the book, I, I realize that some of these things I, I relate to, and I've never really, you know, put into my mind as active thought before. And so I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having this conversation with you and seeing where we land. I think it's so fun when people haven't encountered these kind of topics before, <laughs> because- yes. When they read the book, it's eye-opening. I mean, it can yeah. be really eye-opening. I mean, you might not relate to it. You might not, you know, recognize terms or you might say, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, but you don't necessarily relate. But I think it is amazing and, and, and fun when people do recognize terms and go, oh, yes. okay, because it's, it's, a, it's eye-opening. So the first thing that I usually identify because this is what I identified in my own personal experience was intuition. So I was yeah. highly intuitive person and a highly sensitive person, but I didn't know it. And so intuition was my first entree into this world and creating this primer. So intuition is a lightning fast ability to pull information from your subconscious. And then that information is usually typically involved in decision-making or questioning or trying to figure out or solve a problem. And so the information comes to the conscious mind in, in lightning speed. It's the best way that yeah. I can describe it. And you know that the information is true or correct. That's the other part of it. Because a lot of times when we're doing um, – problem solving, or we have questions, you know, you can, you can spitball, right? It's called literally right. called spitballing where you're throwing out ideas, but you're not sure they're right. Where intuitive information is, is correct and yeah. can be tested. And then it's proven to be correct. But a lot of times these things come up so fast, um, you know, you're not able to test it, but the person, the subjective feeling the first person perspective of the intuitive thought coming to mind, the intuitive knows it's right. Yeah. They just know it's going from A to Z in thought process without knowing how or why you got there. So it's not rational. It's not logical. It's not intellectualism. It's pure intuitive thought. And so that in the book, I draw intuition out in the way it's perceived, the way it's received, the different mechanisms of how it comes in and then how it can be used in the intuitive's life. So that's the first caveat. The second is empath. The empath has a, um, once again, like a self to other processing where they are um, interfacing with someone else and they are able to feel and detect the emotions of other, the other person within their own body. Yeah. So in empathy research, you see this self to other processing described as once again, like first person perspective where you're taking the perspective of the other person. Now, where I'm writing about empathy in this book is I call the deep empath or the empath that's a little farther out on the spectrum because sensitivity, their sensitivity is so heightened that they don't necessarily have that distinction between their own personal subjective feelings and someone else's. 
So that's where it gets kind of um, tricky because you're actually picking up on other people's feelings. And sometimes it feels like telepathic where thoughts almost come through like thoughtful feelings, but you don't know they're not yours. That's the type of empath that I'm describing in the four gifts of the highly sensitive. And I talk about it being a spectrum. And then I go into different types of empaths, like the counselor empath, the advisor empath, the spiritual empath, the um, advocate empath, because there's different types of empathy that are basically linked with compassion and sympathy and various types of associative, associative empathy that can really be turned in or developed into, um, work or a career, you know, profession, but also how to use it, how to use these types of empathic giftedness in your life. Um, The third is visionary. So visionary is another um, pattern that I saw happening in the highly sensitive person through the sensitivity lens, because these individuals have an acute sensory awareness or visual acuity. It's clinically called visual acuity, where they pick up on Um, through their mental field, right through the mind's eye, which is basically like an imaginal space. Or if you've done any meditation, they talk about the mind's eye where you can focus your attention. Well, these individuals focus their attention in an imaginal visual field in front of their mind's eye, which helps them to sometimes um, see images. So sometimes it can be like a clairvoyant flash. That's when it's coupled with intuition. I call that intuitive visionary. Um, They also use that space to solve problems, and they do that through things like engineering, where they're seeing um, objects in three-dimensional space. They can turn the objects over. So, uh, you know, I talk about these types of individuals in the book that are like cartographers, filmmakers, engineers, where they're using that visual imaginal space, but they're using it for problem solving. And so I go into the subtle nuances of vision and how vision works with the uh, visual cortex and how it's connected to different areas in the brain and um, why that's so important for our society to have visionaries helping us because they typically can extrapolate that ability out. And usually they feel passionate about solving societal problems. And so you see the overall or general word visionary for these individuals who have really driven through with their ability and made an impact in our society, typically in monumental ways, you know, like the icons like Albert Einstein. Um, You know, he had a visionary ability to be able to see mathematical equations in that visual field and to have unlimited visual spatial reasoning without logic involved. I mean, there was a logical process behind it, but he was making those quantum leaps visually. Then there's the expressive. The expressive individuals uh, came about through my research and sensitivity because through the highly sensitive person scale, there was different types of sub factors that came about when they kept um, studying it. And so aesthetic sensitivity is where I'm drawing the expressive uh, type from because a Aesthetic sensitivity is a type of perception where these individuals perceive beauty, harmony, the interconnection, interconnectedness of life through nature. And so not only do expressives feel that intense, sublime beauty through their perception, they also are like a conduit for it where they, um, they synthesize. It's like an artful synthesizing of those qualities that they feel, which can feel almost mystical at times. And then they create from that. They create meaning. So I call it expressive because they're usually using some type of medium, creative right. medi- medium to express 
what they what they feel. And that can be writing, it can be um, acting, it can be painting, dancing. I mean, there's so many creative passions that the expressive use that um, it's just what they decide is their own artistic medium for creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I that for whatever reason, um, the first type of creative uh, outlet that that comes to my mind when you talk about expressiveness. I just seeing somebody so passionate in their music. I mean, you think about Mozart, you think about Beethoven, you think about the great artists from from now and you know our our our, our past and just people who have seemed to channel something different that we don't have access to to create this this beautiful symphony or orchestra or just you know this this uh, brand new melodic track. I, I I love thinking about that. Yes. I mean, I think that the, the, um, that was something that came to me that I, I studied for a long time, but I also had a lot of help with it from experts who were teachers in the field of creativity, um, dramatists, uh, script writers, you know, artists who made their living out of their craft. And they all seemed yeah. to have that wonder, um, about the creative process, but also devotion to the creative process and also that ability, right? It's, it's that underlying ability. They wouldn't probably call themselves sensitive, but I started to see that underpinning in that personality type where they really did thirst for expression. They had to express yeah. that creativity or they would actually feel depressed if they didn't. Yeah. Um, going back into some of the research behind this, when you were talking about the, um, the sensitive intuitive, um, and their ability to get to A to Z without, you know, understanding where the rest of the letters are. I mean, have, has, has, I'm assuming research has been done, you know, putting, putting these individuals in an MRI, kind of getting, doing a brain scan as they are, you know, experiencing some of these, uh, these, this, this these intuitions or, uh, or name anything, uh, that you just mentioned. I mean, what, what does the brain look like, uh, in some of these individuals who are highly sensitive? They have an interconnectedness or a synchronous or a synchrony between their right and left hemispheres. They also have a um, more activated, sometimes parietal lobe, which the parietal lobe handles all the sensory perception. Uh, so yeah. you'll also see um, a very active left temporal lobe, which handles a lot of what we're talking about, like feeling, emotion, sound, musicality, pitch, rhythm. And so you'll see that when you put these individuals in the MRI, these different areas of the brain light up and they're highly activated. Not only that, but they're they are interconnected to the other hemisphere because sometimes you'll see, you know, right and left hemisphere dominant functions, like the right side is, um, you know, let's say the visionary, for example, you know, there maybe their right hemisphere in certain areas that are connected to the visual cortex are highly activated for facial recognition, spatial awareness, geometrical shapes. You know, the right hemisphere typically handles shapes facial right. expressions, um, you know, like directional location, like uh, mapping, right? You know, visually mapping. And so you'll see how their brain, um, you know, in that MRI scan will, will bear that out. It will bear out the visual acuity or it'll bear out 
right? If you is take a musician, for example, and have them play a jazz piece and they do an improvisational piece, you'll be able to see that right hemisphere light up, but also as it relates to the musicality and the pitch and the rhythm. And then you'll see the creative aspect um, of what they're synthesizing and improvising. They showed that actually, that was a study that was done at John Hopkins University where they put jazz musicians into an MRI and they saw those areas of the brains light up, which is auditory intuition, auditory, um, you know, aspects of the right hemisphere. So that's how it's interconnected and it's very complex. But one study that I put in the book that is groundbreaking, which I always like to mention, especially um, about people who are really curious about their intuition, there was a groundbreaking right. study that was done at Stanford University uh, by Dr. Gary Nolan, um, Dr. Christopher Kit Green uh, was his um, peer researcher, and they found an area in the brain called the caudate putamen that, I mean, it has been known for intuitive processing, but it wasn't. I mean, go back 20 years once again um, in physiology, they thought the caudate putamen was mostly related to voluntary movement. Yeah. And um, there was some learning and decision-making processing that, that was connected to it. But now they know it is an area where intuitive thought processes are streaming from. So in their study, they took 100 people in, they put them in MRI machines, but they also, as part of the study, had them do a Japanese puzzle. I mean, they were targeted because they all were... Um, you know, highly intelligent, but they were called high performers because they were like top of their field in, in, in certain instances. But that being said, they also had these anomalous experiences. So in the information that was released to me, they were able to sometimes hear voices, you know, which could be considered auditory intuition. They saw ghosts sometimes or, or specters of, uh, light, um, that appeared to them and them only. They had um, a wide range of like anomalous types of experiences that other people typically don't have. And so that was the other thing that they were targeting is, is it come from this area? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they were essentially looking at the caudate patamen at first, but that became part of the study because a neurologist pointed out, oh, this area is thicker in the brain, in your neuroanatomy yeah. of your patients. And so then they went, oh my gosh, then in the caudate patamen, they find that there is this thickened white matter between the head and caudate, and it acts as a hypermorphic gene. So a hypermorphic gene means that it has a more expressive quality than it otherwise would. So these individuals had thickened white matter in their caudate patamen that allowed them more intuitive processes. So they were typical in that they were able to get answers to questions, um, make snap decisions with um, less amount of information, and also perform uh, faster on these tests. So that's groundbreaking because they know the area of the brain where it is. They see the hypermorphic genes, which doesn't mean that the gene mutated in a way that it was doing functionality that it didn't before. What it right. means is its functionality has enhanced from how it was before because it's grown or it's thickened yeah. or it provides more functionality. So that's the best way that I can describe it. But that study is groundbreaking. So now we're going to see more studies around that area and how that how that thickened white matter uh, connects to other areas of the brain right and activation and how intuition connects with 
right in, at right and left hemispheres, and it's going to be amazing. So keep watching the Caudate Pataman studies that will be coming out of coming out of the research labs in the next ten years. That's fascinating. Um, I've got a number of questions, and I, I think. I think I can really boil it down to this one. What's more important, um, I guess, in, in, in sensitivity? I mean, is it nature or nurture? I mean, are, are, are parents raising their kids in such a way that we, we see more children being sensitive? Or is this genetic? Are we seeing uh, generation after generation start to really hone in their ability to uh, be more empathic or intuitive? And are, are we seeing more of that uh, in this day and age, whether or not it's just because of the internet and more, it's more readily, readily available, or it's actually we're seeing more people with these abilities? Well, it's a good segue because in that study that I just mentioned, one of the things that they that they did was they saw that the individuals in their sample size had this hypermorphic gene in the cut yeah. team. And so they yeah. asked permission to look at their family members, right? Their brothers, their sisters, their mom and dad. And they they were included. And then they so they put them in the MRI to evaluate their neuroanatomy and they had the change in the hypermorphic gene as well. So we know it's genetic. We know for certain types of intuitive people who fit on this spectrum that they're genetically being passed down these hypermorphic genes. That's one part of it. Now, intuition doesn't necessarily cross over to all these different uh, abilities, right, that I'm talking about in the book, the empathy, the expansive empathy, the visionary qualities. Now, is it all tied into those intuitive um, parts of the brain? We don't know. Um, you know, so there is some part of this that is definitely environmental that comes about through the home life that comes about through yes, trauma, but also not through trauma. So some individuals who are highly sensitive and don't experience a traumatic home life also have sensitivity, but it's not, um, being developed or not being passed down. Now, could it be through intergenerational trauma? Yes, because the genes in, Um, you know, epigenetic research show us that you can have genes that have changed, right? Your DNA is passed down from both your parents, but then it can change. And so you're handed um, your DNA, but then it can make epigenetic changes once you're born. And so those epigenetic changes are really interesting because the environment essentially turns them on. They turn on the genetic markers for certain types of um, not just what I'm talking about, the gifts, but other types of things. So it's definitely a combination between nature and what you get genetically and your family, and it's a family lineage. And then there's also the development through your environment. So they come hand in hand and it's, you can't, you can't really tease them out, but then let's give the example of the pandemic. So in the pandemic, we all just went through two solid years, pretty much of isolation, where right. we had to step out from society and, and be safe and be in our houses, pretty much the, other than grocery shopping. Now, in sensitivity research, one of the things they found was when you are a highly sensitive person and you isolate because the world feels overwhelming and you don't want to go out into society because you don't want to feel that raw nerve of too much energy and too much sensory information coming in. They found that isolation tends to increase sensitivity. So yes, we're going to see more highly sensitive babies being born because we just went through a a long haul of being isolated. 
And so that's going to come with the territory where the new babies being born are going to be evolutionarily more sensitive because their parents were going to be more sensitive while they were in their um, process through the pandemic. So yes, we're definitely going to see it. So that's a societal, right? That's a worldwide societal thing that we're going to see that those numbers are going to go up and you could probably pretty much predict it that it'll go up by a certain percentage. Now, will it keep going up? I don't know because sensitivity is based out of what's called biological uh, sensitivity reactive, right? It's biological sensitivity to context. And it comes about through nature and these people become more sensitive because they're essentially the bellwethers. They're picking up on danger and detecting danger so that they can essentially, it's a, it's an evolutionary function to warn society, warn the tribe, warn the community. And so that is not uh, conducive to survival of the society because they're offering through their metabolic functions, through the demand on their central nervous system, a specific type of um, function essentially for survival. But that is not um, good for the longevity of the individual. And that's kind of been studied as a risk factor. So because we don't live necessarily in that um, violent past anymore, evolutionary, I mean, some societies have evolved, some still are in that, you know, violent um, fight for life. But because you see that it's not necessarily an advantage for everybody to see sensitivity, I don't think it's going to increase, you know, um, a huge number and everybody's going to be sensitive. It's always probably going to be a certain minority of the population because the advantage of having those people in the society is that there are the ones that are kind of detecting, detecting the danger, but not everybody, it's not an advantage for everybody to be in that heightened central nervous system activation because it's not conducive, you know, necessarily. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. And I, I know we're coming up in an hour and I, I want to be careful asking you a loaded question, but I, I am extremely curious uh, with the dawn of CRISPR and gene editing. I mean, will we see people altering or intentionally editing their 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 DNA or will we see parents, you know, picking and choosing traits that create more highly sensitive children um, moving forward? I don't know if there's any research being done on that. I mean, there's obviously a lot of rumors about uh, the government experimenting with with, uh, telekinesis and all of that stuff over the past 50 to 100 years. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get into that, but I am curious if if you see, I, I know you expressly just said you don't think it serves us well, but do you think p- parents will see opportunity to create more sensitive children if given the opportunity? Well, I had somebody ask me a thought-provoking question one time that has always stayed with me. And they said, Courtney, do you think that some parents subconsciously sense that their children are sensitive and they give them up for adoption? Now, I had never conceived of that thought. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, wow. And and, and the reason why it was a parent, it was a father, and he was just asking, right. he was a scientist, and he said, do you think the reason why subconsciously they might is because they recognize it's going to be harder for them to handle a sensitive child? Right. Okay. And so I was like, wow, thunderstruck. And But it's always <laughs> stayed with me because what you're saying is the beautiful part of sensitivity, right? The advantages, right. the abilities, right. the empathy, that you have an empathic child. And I have, um, you know, sensitive children. So I can say that it is an amazing thing to have a child who's sensitive. But the flip side of that is they are more demanding in terms of what they need, the structure, right. 
the support, the organization, um, you know, the surroundings, you know, and so you do have to have more energy and, and support for those kids. And so I think that it's hard to come down on that one side or the other, because you could see how one person could subconsciously feel that their child, you know, if it was an unexpected pregnancy, or if it was um, somebody who was sensitive and value, uh, fragile and vulnerable themselves, how they yeah. could not necessarily be able to take on all that work that comes with a sensitive child and feel balanced themselves. You know, how they could see yeah. it as not being an advantage to have a sensitive child. And and I don't know that. This is all hypothetical, that these things right. are even what's happening, um, you know, in families. But yes, I do think that it's a quality, like we've talked about with the medicine and we, like we've talked about with the shift in the things that people want, right? They want to have... Yeah. Um, the things that work or the things that they think will give them an advantage. And so insensitivity, there's a lot of people that are, especially high level people are talking about being cautious about these discussions because it's really the better genes, right? And it goes into eugenics right. and how, um, you know, these individuals have, um, they're highly intelligent, they're highly intuitive, right? And they're evolving in ways that are positive for our society. I do yeah. think that those genes will be targeted, especially the ones we've, you know, we've kind of talked about that have already been targeted and will become more um, well-known. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is that, as I've said, it's not always an advantage when it takes um, more support to support that individual because you can't tease out the, um, the talent, right? Yeah without the sensitive piece. And the sensitive piece is, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It's an advantage, but it, it can also be, um, for the individual who's experiencing it, exhausting. So yeah. you, you're not gonna necessarily to be able to tease it out unless science eventually do tease it out. But I think our sensitivity is what is beautiful about it and about the abilities developing over time, because it is what creates compassion. It is what creates interconnectivity in individuals and community and kindness. And that's what we need right now, more yes. than anything else. So yes. I, if I was a scientist, I wouldn't want to tease out the sensitivity from the development of the talents or the abilities, because it's what, it's what makes the ability shine in a way through that social responsibility to do something with it. Yeah. You, you, you literally contribute. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you literally took the words right out of my mouth with that last piece. And I, I'm sure we could talk for another hour and I, I cannot express to you how much I, I have appreciated this conversation. Um, before I let you go, I, I do have a few closing questions that I want to ask you. And the first of which is I, you know, this, this podcast has been such a blessing for me and I'm so thankful to have these conversations and learn from incredible humans like yourself. And so I always like to ask the question, what resources are you looking for to continue your personal or professional growth? And I ask that with the intent of, you know, if somebody's listening across the world and they say, Hey, I can help Courtney out here. Here's what I can do. What is it you're looking for? Well, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in, um, a cycle in my life where I'm, I'm finishing some work. Like I've just finished the book, you know, and, um, you know, really trying to put the word out there about it, but I'm transitioning into this other aspect of my life, which, um, 
goes and takes that work that I've already done further. And so I'm on a, a new adventure. Um, and I think that the area where I need to stay committed to is to writing my second book, which could easily yeah. like fall off the cliff if I don't stay <laughs> vigilant. And yeah. so I, I think that it's really geared around deepening my message and how to deepen my message through my next book and stay committed to that without getting caught up into life, which I know everybody can relate to. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's, that's, that's a fantastic answer. Um, in regard to books, I always like to ask the question, uh, if you could name a book that uh, has just had a life-changing effect uh, for, for you, what would that book be and why? It was Gavin DeBecker's book, um, The Gift of Fear, because I actually was okay. experiencing... Um, I had been in a, an abusive relationship in my first relationship. Rarely do I call it abusive relationship, but that's what it was. Yeah. Um, I'd minimized that for many years. Um, but when things became um, hit a, a powder keg, yeah. it was around the same time that I found the FBI profiler who was helping me with my own abilities. Um, I had somebody recommend that book to me because I was confronted with a very dangerous situation. And it changed my life. It, it put everything into perspective. You know, it, it, it let me know that I was absolutely on point with my intuition and I wasn't crazy. And he gave amazing reasons why intuition is a survival mechanism. So that was a life transforming book for me. And I always recommend it to anybody who feels like they are trying to figure out the difference between a threat and the intuition that's warning them and anxiety because a lot of the yeah. a lot of the lower level fears that we have um, really do keep us in perpetual anxiety and Gavin de Becker goes into the clear differences between life-saving intuition when there is a very real threat and anxiety and then so that everybody could read that but it is it's heavy it's heavy reading yeah. he goes into the case studies of um, of violence. And so it can be triggering. So I always caution people to, if you're not in the right place to read it, don't. But if you're looking for that kind of information, do. <laughs> Dig in. Yeah. Dig in deep. That's wonderful. <laughs> I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I will, of course, put that in the show notes. And it sounds like something that I would love to read as well. Um, last but not least, I, I, I like to leave our conversation with uh, a call to action, one that you either live your life by or one that you implore others to live their lives by. I, just, I always like to know what, uh, what, what, is, what is one thing that, that really drives you or what, uh, what, what do you demand of yourself? I have a few non-negotiables. Um, in my life that I maintain. And as a sensitive person, it's no wonder that I have to have uh, a high level of self-care. And so yeah. my call to action to myself routinely is to carve out the time that I need to allow myself to decompress, especially from um, high demand. When I have a high demand, either in my schedule or my kids' schedules or in my life, I have to take that routine time for self-care, no matter what it is. So that's my own call to action that I try to stay consistent with routinely. And I always like to reiterate for other people, we don't put ourselves first, but we are people. <laughs> you are a person. <laughs> and so make sure you allow self-care. And it, it, if you're a sensitive person, it has to be every day. It really yes. does. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Courtney, thank you so incredibly much uh, for having, again, this conversation with me. If people would like to connect with you, if they'd like to find you online, if they'd like to buy your book, what is what are the best places to find you? I, um, you know, the best way to find me is my website, Inspired Potentials. And I have a bunch of resources on there for sensitivity for people who are curious. I have a sensitivity test. It's a, it's a quiz that will identify your own um, gifts. And so I provide that to people who are curious. And then, of course, my book. If you really resonate with what we're talking about, Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive is one of the only books of its kind that goes into each specific uh gift and then all of the ways that it comes to you and then how you can use it in your life for practical purposes. Amazing. Awesome. Well, again, Courtney, thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward. I I hope this is not the last time we talk Uh, again. This I'm I'm sure we could have spoken for another hour or two. I just, I, I cannot express to you how much this conversation has meant to me. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was, it was a very enlightening and deep discussion. And I really, I love those types of connections. So thank you. And it's not, it won't be the last time. Once again, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Courtney for joining me on the podcast. It was such a pleasure getting to know her, discussing her book, and discussing the research that's being done surrounding the areas of sensitivity. If you would like to learn more about Courtney, if you would like some additional resources based on our conversation, you can find all of those in the show notes at themosaiclifepodcast.com. And of course, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. It absolutely means the world to me. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or with someone in your family. Thank you all again so, so much. And until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.